When a Christian's country becomes an idol, how do we respond to it? I have a very specific strategy for that. We've covered patriotism on the show before for the Christian. I want to tackle it from a new angle. We'll start there on this week's Corey Truax Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be I am also going to borrow from a illustration I heard recently to better understand the divide in evangelicalism when it comes to style on how we correct each other and how pugnacious we are or how winsome we are. I know I tend to fall in my latter years now on that winsome side, and some of the pugnacious types don't like it. Well, I think I thought of an illustration that's going to help us work through that. I recently watched a YouTube video around a a book called When Sorrow Comes. I want to talk about that because it is a discussion of how, specifically pastors and preachers, but I think Christians more broadly, the how our role has changed in the culture and what we say after tragedies. There's actually that and a lot more I want to do on the show today. We'll get started in just a moment. Welcome to the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts, and right here on his radio talk. Glad to have you with us. I get to serve the awesome people of Beechwood Church at... 10.30 on Sunday mornings in Greenville as their pastor for teaching. You're invited to join us. You can Google us, Beechwood Church. Look for Greenville, South Carolina. You'll find us there, and we'd love to see you out there. I mentioned at the top, I have over seven years of the show, now coming up on eight. I, I think one of the themes of this show is being kingdom first, kingdom over country, and that one of our longstanding problems in the American church has been an over-emphasized relationship between the American church and the American government. And so it's it's uh, bound some people's hearts and emotions up, where when the country's not going well, it's they seem to think that all is lost. That means the church can't be going well. And the church, again, being global, this is, instead of national, this has been a theme for the show. And then a good friend and also host of the Westminster Doxology podcast sent over uh, a, a good show topic. His name's Cody Fields. If you don't listen to their show, I highly recommend their show. A couple of you have told me you've started picking that up. Like I think Charlie, you started, started listening. I know you listen every week. Thank you for that. Uh, a couple others have mentioned it. So yeah, go go find those guys. Westminster Doxology Podcast. Coming off of 4th of July, this is a, a good topic. What Cody, main host over there, said was, you know, we just came out of Fourth of July, and there's polls, studies being released saying that we're at an all-time low in basically every demographic for people saying, I'm proud to be an American. So let's first sit in that fact. As you walk around in your country, go to work, go to the grocery store, pump gas, which is a painful experience, you, you live your life, you're less likely than ever to be standing next to someone or walking by someone who would say, yes, I'm proud to be an American. There's lots of consequences to that for any people group, but let's recognize that as a fact. And then the question is, now for the Christian who hears that, the Christian who hears, hey, your country, it is falling apart when it comes to patriotism and love of country. Is the Christian's response to that to bemoan it? Are we sad about it? Do we want to correct it? Or is that a category that we're just not concerned about? We're not concerned, the Christian's not concerned with patriotism or, or love of country. 
That's the question. Well, how should we be concerned? So here's how I broke that down. Let's start with what we think about right now, I think is patriotism. I wrote down two things. One, it is that America first idea. I don't mean the one brought about by the most previous president. He was talking about America first, that we prioritize America's needs over, uh, over other countries. And so we want other countries to step up and pay for NATO. We want people to have their own military, so we stop having to serve as the world's military. Uh, you keep the, your, your own people's very imminent needs first. I think there's some naivety to that. I think it, it, does, not, it does not look at how other things going on in the world might affect your people. And so your, I think, mostly immature attitude of we take care of our people's needs first actually can ultimately end up hurting your people. Anyway, I don't mean that America first. I mean the America is first as American exceptionalism. We, most of us grew up with that idea that America is exceptional. We're not like other places. That's one category, and it, it's hard to deny that's true. We're a unique thing in history. We're a young country, relatively. And somehow went from somewhat obscurity 200 years, a little bit more than 200 years ago. It took about 130 years, and we were an absolute superpower. Like, really, only one country could compete. And since the 1980s, it's really just us, and everyone else is, uh, is a pretender. When you stack up economic, night, economic might with military might along with worldwide influence, there's nothing like the United States. It's a unparalleled superpower. Now, China's coming up along to challenge it, but they're still not at our level. So there's one category, America first. It's like no other. And it comes with things like patriotic symbols, standing for the flag and uh, pledge, like saying literally the words, I pledge allegiance. That's a powerful phrase. Think about what that word means, that level of loyalty and subordination to something superior. Where you are saying, I, I, my loyalty, my needs are subservient to this cause or this person or this place, and so this this core patriotism. Hey, there's no one like us, and that leads me to have affection for and allegiance to this country. I would say, for the Christian, that's dangerous because yeah, well, America is exceptional. The Christian should be able to go one step deeper and go, well, why were we? Oh, well, it's because we came out of the First Reformation and then the Enlightenment, which freed biblical thinking on an individual level, and it spurred incredible economic growth, security, safety, stability for everybody. Yeah, I mean, we're exceptional, but it's only because it happens to be that this country was the one that most closely reflected some biblical thinking. It didn't reflect all, all of biblical thinking, but it most closely did in a lot of ways, and it led to a lot of prosperity, security. It was, it was awesome. So even, even in our exceptionalism, it comes from biblical basis, so, but that has to then terminate when it comes to the allegiance and loyalty thing, knowing my country has always had sins, and it seems to only be growing darker in its sins. 
I know the God of the Bible will judge this land. I think we're already under already under judgment. And so then my this thing I love, I kind of, I kind of like the country. My heart is broken for it, but I'm not in mourning. I oh oh good example. This just came to me. Thank you, Lord. God forbid this ever happened, but those two nephews of mine that I got to play something of a dad role for a small amount of time. If ever they strayed, they're becoming young men now. If ever they turned from the faith, if ever they they strayed in their ways, I wouldn't get over it. The 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 emotional strife of losing one of them to worldliness, to walk away from the faith, it would affect my every waking day and every moment. I can't lose them. I'm too, my affections are too bound up in them. Now, if this country starts to become weak, if this country falters, I mostly am concerned because I have those two I have a bunch of nephews and nieces, and I have a bunch of kids I care about at Beachwood Church, and I, I want a good world for people. I, like, I love humans, and I want them to have a good world. And my heart will break for them, but if, if this country falls apart, I, you know, I don't have that kind of affection for it. Even more so in this way. If another country were to be founded somewhere, some kind of revolution happens, and it looks more like the America of old and more closely resembles... Judeo-Christian ethics and biblical thinking, I'd move there in a second. I'm not attached to this place. Not like that. I'm attached to the ideas. And if the ideas were more faithfully practiced somewhere else, I'm out. Peace. And so that first gut level of patriotism, yeah, it's dangerous for the Christian to think we're exceptional because we're Americans or to then have that affection having us pledging allegiance to this place and our emotions are wrapped up in its goodness. And so if that's not the right category, the category for the Christian should then be not America first and proud to be, proud to be an American, so much so we pledge, pledge allegiance, but instead, gratefulness and humility. I wasn't born here, but I'm, I, I've lived the vast majority of my life here. So I'm just grateful. Lord, thank you that I grew up in a place that was influenced by Christian thinking in its systems and its structures, so that it has been largely so stable, safe, prosperous. Like, I, I even think, I'll give you some in, insight on my life right now. I just sold a, sold my house that I bought when I was 23 years old. Great appreciation of that property value, and I was able to sell it here in my mid to late 30s. You really set up for, for the rest of, and, and set up for some, a real chance for financial security and safety for the rest of my life, and for posterity as well. The same is true of my big brother, able to sell a house and can can set up now for long-term security, safety, stability, and for posterity. I think of my other siblings and their situations. Every one of us is going to end up having better financial lives than our parents. And the Lord has been so good to our parents. That, that is a story that I want for all of, for every succeeding generation. And it makes me just feel grateful that four kids, none of which have the work ethic of their dad, that's no slight to any of my siblings. I'm just saying my dad works really hard. Actually, my siblings are all, 
Actually, every one of them works way harder than me. I just thought of that, and that's embarrassing. Um, anyway, the, uh, anyway, yeah, it's not a slight to anyone's work ethic. It's just, man, my parents had to dig out of it. You know what, what, you, what happens when you spend 15 years of your life in missions? You don't build any wealth for those 15 years, okay? And so to, to live in a country where that's possible, wow, what a, what a cool place. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for that. This is a cool place to live. And instead of being proud to be an American, it's just humility. Man, I, I have been given so much opportunity here. This is, I'm humbled by God's good sovereignty to place me in this place. So the better category than proud to be an American pledging allegiance and seeing us as an exceptional, exceptional the better category is just to be grateful and humble that we got to live here. And then finally, the best category is then this. I'm so grateful and so humbled that I got I was put here. I wonder how I can use it for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. I have been given this peace, this prosperity. I have been given this opportunity. I'm not a Christian with no prospects for economic growth out in the Congo. I'm not in a remote village in Brazil. I no, I mean, I'm here with the internet doing a podcast in my new house. I mean, I've, I've got some real opportunity to grow the kingdom through the earthly kingdom God put me in. That's the best category. Lord, you've given me an incredible place. I love it here. Now, how can I use its peace, prosperity, and all of its opportunity to do things for the kingdom? So, Cody Fields, Westminster Doxology Podcast, asked that good question. What is the Christian's relationship to a, an ebb in patriotism? I'm not bothered by it. Let's, let's have better categories of gratefulness, humility, and then being utilitarian on how we use this blessing to spread the gospel and grow the kingdom. Now, we're taking a break. When we come back, I want to recognize this is true. One of the idols in our hearts, there's lots of idols in this modern day. There's sexual identity. There is uh, materialism. There is victimhood mentality. There's lots of idols that fill the hearts of Americans. But one of them is... A, an, an idolatry of country. I have a very specific way I think we should respond to that in love to our brothers and sisters who struggle with that. We'll do that when we come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. There was a book a few years ago called Respectable Sins that talked about the sins that we overlook. We don't mention as much gossip or greed or materialism because it's those are the respectable sins as opposed to you know gross sexual sin or different types of overindulgences in substance abuse and things of that sort and one of the respectable sins i think that we have in the american church is an overemphasized patriotism an idolatry of country and so while we have sermons and strategies to address all of these sins. I think maybe we have an underdeveloped theology to respond to idolatry of country. I want to give you some thoughts on that in just a second. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts and right here on his radio talk. You can find me, your host, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for my very weird name. You can also find more at CoreyTruax.com, CoreyTruax.com, where you can even invite me to come speak at your event, whatever it is. I'll, I'll be preaching at Cornerstone Church up in Waynesville, North Carolina at the end of the month, the final Sunday of this month. If you have other things, you can submit a request there. You can contact the show. 
I'm doing a little bit more writing on the website now as well, so you're invited to go participate there. How do we respond to an overly patriotic Christian? This also joins with me another thought I had. I think it's because I, I'm willing to still listen to and consume media that is not overtly trying to tell me I'm right about everything. And I think that's an unhealthy way to behave. Is I think it's unhealthy if your media diet is only Ben Shapiro, Matt Walsh, Steve Dace, Ali Stuckey, Glenn Beck, and you just pile them on top of each other. Um, who are some, from a Christian perspective, uh, uh, Todd Friel, James White, if it's the only things, I think it's, or Al Mohler. By the way, everyone I just named, well, not everyone I just named, almost everyone I named I like. I'm just saying there's there's got to be some variety in what we take in. But because I do that, I've noticed out in a secular, left-leaning media, a not a resurgence, I guess, like an insurgence, an increase in the amount of publishing done with the words Christian nationalism in it. Like New York Times and NPR have done feature stories on Christian nationalists and the, the fear it should strike in our hearts. Now granted, these people are a problem in some ways, but they're not any kind of threat to national stability in, by any stretch. And I think some of our overly patriotic brothers and sisters can, can start being tempted by a Christian nationalism as well. So we need to be, have the tools, or we need to have the tools, to respond to it. When I say Christian nationalism or an overly patriotic Christian, I think definitions are important. Here's what I mean. I mean people that value the nation over the faith. And that's sometimes deep heart work to decide if that's true or not. But there are those I, I, I think would say. I mean, we're, we're here to save America. That's the, that's the reason God's placed us here. The reason God placed us here is to go, therefore, and preach the gospel to all creatures, all creation. It's not, not creatures, I'm sorry. It's the, the point that while we're here doing that, we, we love our neighbor and we pray and work for the welfare of the cities where God has placed us. But I'm talking about people who have, as their obsession, we must save America, whatever that means. I think for that group, too, in the definition, Christianity stops being the thing itself. It becomes a tool for nation-keeping. You know, this is largely true of a lot of Western Europe, certainly the British Isles, with Ireland, Scotland, and Britain. For centuries, Christianity was, the, the having a, a common faith was the way to keep the Isles together, was to keep the parts of Western Europe from, from feuding or fighting more than they actually did. Shared religion, for literally millennia, has been a hallmark of a cohesive people group. The, the fact that we look at Muslims now as weird for doing honor killings when someone leaves the faith, that's normal in, for the history of the world. That's been a very normal thing for most pagan faiths in Latin America, in the, the old Aztecs and Mayans. That's very normal in a lot of parts of Africa throughout history because you're, you're costing your people cohesion. You can't break out. Of what the, of the mold we've made, it weakens us as a people. You got to choose the people over yourself. Like it's, it's very normal for a people group to all have the same faith, and so those people who are looking for national stability, how do we have a healthy country? What's the key to that? Well, we need to have the same faith. It was Christianity that built us, so we need a Christian nation 
And so, uh, so we're going to use Christianity as the tool that will make us cohesive and healthy. And uh, let me say this, Jesus was never meant to be your tool. He's not your mascot. He's not your assistant. He's not the thing that came along to make sure you have a healthy country and you feel safe and stable and prosperous. That's not what he's here for. He's king over all things. Listen to me. Say again, he is king over all things. He's king over your dinky country, and it'll go away someday, and his kingdom will live forevermore. So that's the definition of an overly patriotic or Christian nationalist type. They value the nation over Christianity, and they're kind of using the faith as the tool to save their nation. Here's how I think we respond to that. Of course, you can say, call to repentance. That's what we do. Preach the law and gospel, and I don't disagree with you. In a more developed strategy, here's what I think comes, or here's how I think overly patriotic Christians, maybe patriotic to the level of idolatry or Christian nationalists, here's how they are wooed away by the enemy into that idolatry. They love the story, the story of their nation. For any nation to be healthy, it has to have a shared story. The Greeks, the Romans had this. They knew where they came from. It was false, but they knew where they came from, the gods clashes of titans. The German story is important to them. They tell it all, and they know what happened before World War II and what, what happens after and who they are as a people. Some of these older countries, they do a very good job of keeping around the, the monuments. Like I, I remember going through, through France 15 years ago and like knowing where King Henry VIII is buried, and then... Uh, Napoleon is buried here, and they make a big deal about it to tell the story of where did we come from? Who were our philosophers? Who were our leaders? And sometimes you, st- you can tell a really beautiful story. And the United States has a beautiful story made up of a, a freedom-hungry, adventurous people, a tough, enduring people with perseverance, braving oceans and rivers and rugged land and unknown peoples and unknown places to build this. I mean, honestly, I mean, if you just just think, think back 200 years, we probably had fewer than a million people on this continent. Maybe it was about a million. And that people group in 200 years became the greatest force in human history, put a man on the moon, cured countless diseases. Like, wow, this place is awesome. We tell the story, and you don't want to lose that, do you? It's also so unique. What a a unique place. What a unique place it is that I actually, the proceeding generations almost always end up with more wealth and prosperity than their their, their their parents. How cool is that? It's pretty rare in human history. How rare is it that we're so free? That's not normal. That we've got so much ownership of property by those who don't really have a lot, don't have huge incomes, but own so much stuff. Man, this place is cool. I love this story. And so if we're going to respond to the story of a, a ragtag group of nobodies who made an empire... And no one figure did it. It was like just the will of the people and their own work ethic and perseverance. They, they, they saved a world from the scourge of Nazism. Like the people did it. 
What a beautiful story. If we're going to respond to that story that makes people so highly affectionate towards their country, so affectionate that it turns to idolatry, we're going to have to respond with a better story. If we tell the story of how beautiful it is, then we're all called away from the other identities that people I, that people struggle with as idols. If the story of the faith is so beautiful, then yeah, I'm, I'm glad I'm an American or whatever, but man, let me tell you about this other story. The American story is beautiful, but yeah, nothing like this thing. Let me tell you about it. Yeah, I mean, the, the story of my ethnic group, my ethnicity, my background, it's important to me, and I... I'm not going to drop that identity, but and it pales in comparison to this other beautiful story. Let me tell you this. I'm a, I'm a capitalist or a, a Western conservative, and we got a great story of what those ideas have done for people, but man, I got a way better story than that. A better story than capitalism? Uh, yeah, let me tell you about the, the story of Jesus. It's a much more beautiful story. We could People identify and have idolatries around their ethnicity or their political ideology or their political party or their nation. Or for this matter, uh, man, let me tell you about being a Southerner and what it means about the values of the South. We respect our elders. We keep our word. We hold to traditions. We help our neighbors. We're quick to defend the weak. I could tell you a great story of being Southern. Oh, but, man, I got a better story. When America lost its national identity, the human heart does did what it does. It went and found identities. It went and found all these affinity groups. So we, we ended up having a world where the most important thing to someone is their ethnicity, their sexuality, their regional affection, their college football team, their pro football team, their denomination. Listen, I like denominations, but in the church world, maybe it was that. We lost national identity, but the heart's going to find one. And all those identities that people are offered, they have good stories, so we got to tell the better one. And that's where, as it often comes back to with me, this is where knowing your Bible and what's in it is so key and clear, excuse me, so, so key and important. To tell the stories to your kids. And this is where I find that the Bible Project is so helpful. Those videos do such a good job of just showing you the continuity and the creativity of the Christian story. I mean, I'll just go two off the top of my head here. I wish I'd have thought about this more before starting, but there's at least two things. If someone told me, someone asked me to define it, why is your Christianity so beautiful? I think I would at least say I, I am blown away by the end of the Gospels and the first part of Acts, and then looking to modern day. It really is bonkers. It's crazy. It's beautiful. That a couple hundred people in an obscure part of the Middle East a couple thousand years ago now has two billion people claiming to be of the same faith. That's crazy, guys. Like, I, I, It's beautiful that Jesus said that the, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, that you're going to go and to preach the gospel to all nations. And like I'm I'm in Easley. I'm in South Carolina. And I believe to the depths of my soul the reality of a Arab Jew named Jesus two thousand years ago, that he is the, the cornerstone of my salvation. Yeah, it's kind of beautiful that that's that little ragtag group of people 
has now grown to what it is. It's awesome. I love the, the beauty, the literary design of the Old Testament. That, and what a, what a beautiful thing, the idea that your maker would want to be with you. Especially in a world where so many father-daughter and son and then mother-daughter, mother-son relationships are so sinfully broken. I mean, I don't want to just say broken. I feel like we say that sometimes, so not to say the word sin. Where someone or both parties have sinned against one another, they're so painfully broken. There's beauty in a story that says, hey, you know that instinct you have where you want to be in relationship with your maker? And wow, man, this this world, this culture, it's messed up that up in a physical way. But you know you can be with your true maker? Not only can you be, he wants to be. When he made humanity, he made humanity in a place where he could dwell with them. And just the beauty of the story that when we broke our ability to be in his presence, he just kept creating ways. He says, okay, well... I'll, I will cover you from the scorching sun with this cloud. Follow me through this desert. I will keep you warm and give you light at night. Follow this pillar of fire through this wilderness. I want you to build me a tent. I want to be with you. I want to be where you are. Hey, and on this, in, in this tent, on this big curtain I'm going to make, I want you to put cherubim. I want you to put angels. Because angels are what guarded my presence from you when you had to leave Eden. And I want you to come through those angels. I want you to come back in. I want to be with you. Oh, I'm going to make a temple to make it much more permanent of a setting where you can be with me. My, I am your maker, and I want to be with you. And it's so imminent and so real. I want to be with you so much. I want to come down, and with very real hands, I want to heal your blind eyes. I want to put my hands in the dirt and make mud, and I want to rub them in your eyes to make you see. I want a woman who's been suffering for a decade, more than a decade, with a sickness, an issue of blood. I want her to touch my garment. Hey, I want you to get so close that your tears can, and, your, and your hair can wash mine before I wash the feet of my people. And ultimately, I want you to put your hand on my pure side. I want to be so close. Man, that's beautiful. It is beautiful that in 1787, 56 men got together in Philadelphia and wrote a governing document that's led to all this prosperity. And that story is compelling, but man, I got a better one. So how do we respond to the Christian a little bit overly patriotic. It gets to idolatry, maybe a Christian nationalism. We don't just call to repentance. We do that. But we say, hey, this one thing you've got, I've got something better. Let me tell you about that, and let's see if we can get your affections aligned to that beauty. To do that, you're going to need more content than I just gave you. You're going to need more stories than that. I think the Bible Project does that well. I think if your media environment and media consumption tends to be a lot more political or national, you're not going to learn the beautiful stories of the Bible. It still surprises me how many people who grew up in church just don't know these stories. So do it. Learn the stories. Share the stories. You will prevent and you will treat 
idolatry of country by giving people a greater affection for the kingdom of God. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I have that video I told you about, uh, When Sorrow Comes, a, a book, well, it's a video about a book I want to review with you, and then an illustration I had about how those more pugnacious types in the faith think that I'm a little winsome. I think I can illustrate this decently well. Uh, let's do that when we come back for the rest of the Court Rack Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. It's not plagiarism if you just can't remember where you got it. I'm just going to say, I heard it said once, and then I'm going to tell you what I heard said. I wish I could attribute it to the right person. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. You can email the show at Show at gmail.com. Show at gmail.com. I'll try to get to some other emails before we are, before we are finished if we have time. Here is a... A theme of of the year, a little bit, on the show and in my life, just online interactions, and I don't interact online much anymore, but just kind of reading what other people are saying. I've talked about on the show how I've been annoyed that people like me who are just not super aggressive in our demeanor get talked about as, you know, I think I've used the word liberal, liberal squish, that we're not rock rib steel spine, I mean, I'm not... I still think I'm probably the most conservative person anyone knows. Uh, at least I mean, p- politically. I mean, I don't know what the definition of conservative theologically is, but anyway, I get annoyed at those folks. And an old illustration, and, and while I'm annoyed at those folks, I also love them, and I know that we need each other, and I've, I've been trying to figure out ways, how do I say that? How do I get them to understand, hey, we really do need each other. If, if you could understand your role and maybe control it some more, understand my role, that no, we we all need each other. I remember back in like 2013 or 14, it was right when I was going through my own ordination at Beechwood Church. It was, someone said, be a shepherd, not a sheepdog. Or I might have heard a sermon that was for pastors. Don't be, don't be a sheepdog, be a shepherd. That the relationship between the sheep and the sheepdog is primarily fear. The The sheepdog gets the sheep to stay in line, and they're good at it. The sheepdog is very good at getting the sheep to go where they need to go, to growl and snarl and to nip at their feet, to, through intimidation and fear, they get the sheep to go where they're supposed to go. And I think we have right now a deluge, a glut of sheepdogs in the evangelical world. Maybe they're just on the internet, but we have way more supply than we need of sheepdogs. They're there to bite and scare and snarl and say to all the sheep, don't you dare get out of line. Go where you're supposed to go right now. And I'm telling you, there's a role for that. Sheepdogs are good. I like sheepdogs. I've ever met one and want to pet it, right? They've got a very important role. And yes, the sheepdogs in evangelicalism. You're needed. You're needed on the internet to make memes and arguments to tell people how absurd it is that we don't know what the word pastor means in the Southern Baptist Convention. And you're needed to say you're you you reading the the you reading your Bible in one hand, the newspaper in the other, 
is not a productive way to do exegesis. You're not actually going to get the meaning of the, of the scriptures from your Time magazine or your, your Greenville News, all right? Yeah, yes, you're, you're needed. You're needed to say, hey, uh, this pastor over here who did this sermon with this group of people about racial reconciliation or about uh, some kind of LGBT thing, yeah, that, that's way out of bounds. Yes, I'm telling you we need you. I am trying to get you guys to understand the sheepdogs that bite and snarl and scare. You also do need shepherds. You do need someone to come along and say, hey, 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 this way. Hey, hey, you quit biting at him for one second. You got him riled up. Let's get him, let's get him calm. Hey, come this way. There's, there's green pastures over here. There's good theology. There's good teaching. There's not just error to avoid, but there are correct things to learn. I almost feel like that's the two the two pronged approach. We need sheepdogs to make sure the error gets corrected, and we need shepherds to actually lead you to something you can eat, right? Not just telling you everything that's not good, but giving you something you can you can chomp onto. Now I am I'm not just a shepherd. I'm also a sheep. And so I, I try to respect this. I need I need sheepdogs. I won't need someone to to bite at me every now and then. And I also need to be shepherded and be and given good content, good information. I need to drink from the right springs and eat in the right places. I know this very prolonged metaphor is probably going to get out of hand, but this is the metaphor the Lord gave us. For good reason. We are sheep. We are defenseless. We are in need of a shepherd. And we need some sheepdogs. Here's all I'm saying. In your own conversations, in your own churches and online, Maybe use that. Hey, man, you're a sheepdog. You bite and snarl and spit and intimidate, and people are afraid to get something wrong because you're going to snap at them. There is some role for you. Will you recognize that I'm not one? And not every, not everybody's going to be. I think of, I often think of him because he's been so formative to me. Tim Keller's not a sheep, sheepdog, all right? I think R.C. Sproul probably was, like his Presbyterian brother. Well, he's also a shepherd. He did both quite well. So let, let us have our distinct roles and be okay with it. That's all, all I wanted to say. We need sheepdogs and shepherds. And just let me be a shepherd, okay? You sheepdogs, quit being so mean about it. Okay, uh, let's, let's do this one. I never I didn't read the book, but I recently watched a video of the person who wrote the book, and she was doing a lecture, and then she took some questions. It was a good discussion. This also goes to church world. I'm trying to do all the church world stuff before I get into some... Public world stuff. The book was called When Sorrow Comes. And she did a really good job of comparing and contrasting sermons on, a, on the Sunday morning after Lee Harvey Oswald killed uh, JFK. That's right. And sermons the Sunday after Timothy McVeigh blew up the federal building in Oklahoma City. And she's trying to illustrate what the church's role has been when sorrow comes, when disaster comes. What has the church historic been like? And the sermons that were collected and kept after the Lee Lee Harvey, Harvey Oswald throws the world into tumult by killing the president, there was a, a, a the nature of those sermons was mostly lament over God's judgment. 
in Presbyterian, Episcopalian, there were actually very few Baptist sermons that were mentioned in that one. Uh, there, there was a, a couple Methodists, like all the ones that this woman could collect. It was hundreds of sermons. I would say it was the majority were saying, reflect, it was, it was challenging the people, reflect on how your role in the culture might have created a world where either the Lord would want to judge our people by throwing us into chaos, or where you might have participated in a world that condones violence. Like, be connected to this people group. Feel this fear. Fear this, feel all the sadness and grief. And do some introspection on what, on what responsibility you might have to your fellow man, to your God. What repentance might we, we might need to do as a church to say to the Lord, have mercy on us. That was the big theme. The big theme after Timothy McVeigh blew up the federal building in Oklahoma City. A lot of it was about help your neighbor, and there was a big emphasis placed on first responders and the role they play and how you could be a first responder in helping your family process or uh, it was doing doing things. Go do. Now, is either sermon wrong? No. I'm not saying the Timothy McVeigh sermons were wrong where it was, all right, get activated and go do things for your neighbor. But man, there is something valuable about having a voice out there that says, hey, be introspective for a minute. Think about why the Lord might, in his sovereignty, have purposed this. There's, there, there, there's tragedy that happens in the world, and the church needs to be able to speak into it. And I think the word, just go do for your neighbor, is good, but it's, it's too incomplete. I think in tragedy, I'll work this out, I hope, the next time a tragedy happens. And having some spot to say on social media and into microphones and and on stages, let's use this as an opportunity to ask, Lord, what, what what can we do? Not to appease our God, it's not my point, but what role might I have played? Help us to repent. Give repentance to your people. You might be doing this and calling us to repentance and, and judgment over this people and have that kind of ethic and lament over it. I think we have moved. There's no, She didn't have any data for more recent tragedies, but I think we moved from the, the church of the 50s and 60s after a tragedy saying, consider how what role you play and, and repent of sin to the church of the 90s saying just you know just do something good for your neighbor I often think we what we have now is an ethic of avoidance I don't know that it's bad let me explain I know my instinct is not to use the Sunday morning time especially sermon time to say anything about what's happening in the world not necessarily specifically. I think there's room for that in church. I think dedicated prayer times, things like that. But that's when we are in that church together for that service, we are concerned with cosmic and eternal things, with charging the saint up. Now, that does not mean the church doesn't have any way to say it, especially now with gathering on Facebook and social 
other social media things, uh, different ways churches communicate with their people and with the world. There's space to say things into a hurting world after a tragedy. It doesn't have to be held as a sermon like it did in the, I guess in the 50s for JFK, and then, or I guess it's the 60s, in the 90s after Timothy McVeigh. I think I'm okay with an ethic of avoiding the topics on Sunday morning during church, or at least during the sermon time. There's, there's space to do it. But it's at least worth considering. Uh, if you want to go find that, it's on YouTube. When Sorrow Comes is the book, and that's the question we're asking is, what is the role of the Christian when there's tragedy? How do we speak into it? Uh, what do we got here? Let's do, yeah, let's do that one. I had that email last week from Rodney who said that the passage from Jude was basically don't condemn people to hell. That's for God. That's for Jesus to do. It's for God to do. You don't uh, you don't condemn people to hell. I actually got quite a few responses to that. One of them was from Brandon. Um, it's Brandon, great email. A lot of stuff there. He he pointed to John three, not ju- not just sixteen, but a lot of that content there to I think sum it up this way. I, ho- I think I'm doing it faithfully. We are called to warn people about hell and be very serious about it. Warn people of the fate. Warn people of the wrath there is to come. And then sure, the condemnation, the actual act of condemning, doesn't belong to us. We don't have that authority or that power. But I think I think there's a good catch here. Let's not take the idea that we don't condemn people to hell to not warn people that there is a very real hell. All right, I got like four minutes, a lot of things on the sheet. What do we take? Let me grab that one. A bit of the only the only political thing or thing going on in the news that I wanted to mention. You know me. I like to bring down temperatures and would love to see a more peaceful and verdant world. That's the one that I like. As far as it concerns me, I want to live peaceably among all men. That's what the Bible says. That's what I want to do. As I've said before, for me, it's like unfortunate. I say this begrudgingly. But sometimes there's a peace not worth having, and there's there's battles and conflicts that have to be had to have a peace worth having. But yeah, it's my it's my nature to want to live in peace. the The actions I have seen the last couple weeks with the Supreme Court justices and the protests outside their house, and then the one where Justice Kavanaugh was trying to have a meal in D.C. and they were protesting outside of the of the, of the restaurant. I think this is very problematic for the country. We now have a group of progressive here, secular progressive liberal people in D.C. with a Twitter account saying, you know, if you work at a restaurant you and you're, you're a busboy, you're a waiter, you're a waitress, you work there, and you see a, a justice come in, you DM us, we're going to get a crowd together, you know, we're going to wreck it. We're going to wreck it for any justice that's trying to just live their life because of what they did to abortion. I'm first going to call this what it is. It's immoral. It's wrong. It's bad. In our First Amendment right to assemble, you, you got to coordinate your. If you're if you're doing it rightly, I'm not saying doing it legally. Some legal things are bad. Some legal things are immoral. But in any case, if you if you're going to protest, you need to coordinate what, how, when, where you protest to the thing you're actually protesting. And so you should be protesting. Justice Kavanaugh at work, where he does his job, or Amy Coney Barrett at work, where she does her job, not at their personal homes. That's just a matter of decency. So that's that's one. Here's where I am nervous. 
the American right, of which I consider myself a part, I'm a, I'm an odd part, right? Because I don't adopt a lot of the tactics and philosophy, but I'm I'm a firm, cons- firmly conservative guy. The American right over the last decade or so has been more and more willing to adopt the tactics of the left. Disruption, unrest, these have been tactics, violence, these have been tactics of leftism in the Western world for centuries. Some folks on the right have adopted disruption and, and sometimes even violence. It's just been more of a leftward tactic. But the American right, the last let's go decade, has been more and more willing to adopt those tactics. And I I don't know that we're not going to end up in an escalating, like an escalation of arms. That the next thing that we see is, I don't know, Pete Buttigieg or something is going to show up to a restaurant and there's going to be a big protest outside and they're going to ruin it for him. And then they're going to pay it back to somebody, the left will pay it back to somebody else and the right will come back and say, all right, well, if this is the game now, then no public person gets to, you can't live a life. We're going to wreck everything. We will come to your neighborhoods. We'll come to your cul-de-sacs. We'll come to your restaurants. We, we will, because we think we're the most important people in the world. We think our, our position is so right and righteous because we are the most important people on this planet. We will do whatever we want. You can all get over it. And if one side starts acting like that, the other one will too. I used to not say that. I didn't think the other, the right would respond in kind. But I think we have found that there are elements on the right that will respond in kind. And so while I want to condemn the action, I also just want to give warning. It's not good for our body politic to to behave this way. It's going to lead to all kinds of unrest. Thank you for listening to The Corey Truax Show. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also email the show at CoreyTruaxShow.com. You can also get more content at CoreyTruax.com. I hope you will. I will be back with another another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.